Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you uh, to turn with me to Luke, I'm sorry, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. If you're using one of the black Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, it's page 1072. What a great way uh, to just get ready uh, to open God's Word and, and learn something that will challenge us today. Uh, we've all heard the question before, uh, when is enough enough? And I know our church is filled with educators and uh, students, and oftentimes in that relationship, people are asking the question, when is enough enough? You know, I've been given this assignment, and I'm doing all I think I ought to do, but is my enough enough? Or maybe you ask that question in the context of the relationship you have with an employer. Maybe you have a particularly demanding boss and you're always wondering, when is enough going to be enough? It's a question that we often ask, but when we're asking that question in connection with our relationship with God, that's not a good thing. But I'm convinced that many people every day Many people every Sunday are asking the question, when is enough enough with my relationship with God? Have I prayed enough? Was I sorry about my sins enough? Did I believe enough? Did I repent enough? When is enough enough? Have I done enough to be pleasing to God? Now, when we're asking that question in connection with our relationship with God, that's a bad thing. Because it, it leads us to a place of fear. It leads us to many doubts. It will lead us to discouragement and anxiety and to feelings of condemnation. God never meant for us to live life asking the question, is my enough enough when it comes to the Lord? But as I said, so many people ask this question. I reread a little book this week that I would recommend to you if you enjoy reading. It's a short book you could read in just uh, uh, less than an hour perhaps. Uh, but it's uh, by J.D. Greer, pastor in North Carolina. And I know some of you have read this book because you've mentioned it to me. The title of the book is um, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And it seems like an unusual book for a Christian pastor to write. But in that book, in the beginning of that book, Pastor Greer says that when he was young, he thinks that he set a world record for the number of times he got saved. <laughs> He said it must have been two, three, four hundred times that he got saved. He was baptized every time they would let him be baptized because he lived with this fear. He lived with this question, when is enough enough? Well, this isn't just something that people deal with today. People have been dealing with this since the beginning. And in, in, in the last few weeks, we've been going back some in history. We've been looking back 500 years in history. And, and we've been look, looking at a, a period of time when the church reevaluated what are the foundations of the faith. And one of the things they struggled with in those days was just this simple question, when is enough enough? And one of the central figures in that struggle, his name was Martin Luther. We've talked a lot about him in the last few weeks. And Martin Luther was a man going to school, studying to be a lawyer until one day he was in a terrible storm and he cried out to God in the only way he knew how. And he told God that if God would save him from the storm, that he would uh, quit pursuing the, 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 the legal field and that he would become a monk. Well, he did survive the storm and he was true to his word. 
he became a monk. And when he became a monk, he began to try to really answer the question, when is enough enough? And he tried everything so that he would feel like, so that he would be certain that he had done enough to please the Lord. Uh, He would go into the confessional. In those days, the church taught that when you confess your sins, you confess to a person. And so he would go into the confessional and he would stay, can you imagine this, six hours a day confessing his sins. He was so scared that he would leave out just one sin and that God would get him for it. That he, he spent six hours a day confessing his sins. It, it, it's sort of funny when you read about some of this because he would confess sins that he committed while confessing sins. It was just sort of a, this never-ending cycle. He would whip himself uh, for his sins so that he would feel uh, remorse for the things that he had done. He would sleep on the floor, on the rocks on the floor uh, to make himself miserable because of his sins. Later, he wrote about that period. He says, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice. I tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness, which means a right standing with God by my works. In 1510, uh, his superiors decided to help him with this by sending him to Rome. Rome was sort of the headquarters of the church. And so they said, if you'll go to Rome and you will witness some of these relics, if you will view some of these relics and you will go through some of the ceremonies that you can go through in Rome, it'll, it'll help you feel like you have done enough. And so he went to the Scala Sancta. Uh, we would call them the holy stairs. And you can still go to these today in Rome. It's about 30, 35 stairs, just a, a, a stairwell uh, that uh, they believed had been brought from Jerusalem in the fourth century. And it was the stairwell that Jesus walked up and down when he went to see Pilate just before he was crucified. And so they told him, if you'll go and crawl up these stairs, then you will feel like your enough is enough. Uh, now, I've had an opportunity, my wife and I, to go and view these stairs. And, and, and we went up the stairs. I didn't crawl up the stairs because I was there for a very different purpose. Uh, but I walked up the same stairs that he crawled up. And in fact, while I was walking up these stairs in, in Rome, there were people all around me who were crawling up the stairs. And, and they did just what Luther did. They, they would go up one step on their hands and knees, and they would pray the Lord's Prayer, and they would kiss the step. And then they would go up another step and pray the Lord's Prayer and kiss the step just in this desperate act to somehow have a breakthrough with God and to feel like their enough was enough. Well, Martin Luther did this and he got to the top and he said famously, who knows whether this is true? His struggle for is enough enough continued many years until finally he sort of stumbled across uh, a verse in the book of Romans. In his study of the book of Romans, he came to Romans 1.17, which says in part, the righteous will live by faith. And God began to help him understand. God began to convince him that we are saved, that we have a right relationship with God by faith alone. 
Sola fide is the way they would have said it. By faith alone, not by works, not by climbing up the holy stairs, not by whipping yourself, not by six hours a day of confession, but by faith alone, we can have a relationship with God. And so everything changed in Luther's life. And that really was the beginning of the Reformation that changed the whole church. Well, I want you to know that Luther didn't have to go just to Romans 1.17 to learn that. He could have found this truth in a number of places in the Bible. Ephesians 2.8 says this, for you're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by the goodness of God, the gift of God through faith, whatever in the world that is. And we'll try to figure that out before the end of the message, but you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The Bible says he could have also seen the same thing in Acts 16, 31, where we're commanded to believe in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and you should know when you see the word believe, that's a verb, right? When you see the word believe in your New Testament, the word behind that in the original language is the verb form of the word faith. The problem is in English, we don't have a verb for faith. We have a verb for belief. What's the verb for belief? Believe, okay, you hanging with me here? I'm gonna get a grammar teacher up here if you don't pay attention. So we, belief is the noun. And the verb is believe. So you take the noun faith. What is our verb for faith? Well, we don't have one. So when you see the word believe in the New Testament, the word behind that is the word faith. It's just the, 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 the verb form of faith. And, and so it says in, in, in Acts 16, 31, believe or faith, if I could use some poor grammar, faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so... The declaration um, of the reformers uh, was made clear, sola fide, that we are saved through faith alone. But honestly, I know that doesn't clear a lot up. Uh, just by declaring that we are saved by faith alone doesn't mean that people aren't confused about whether or not their enough is enough. Because everybody has a different definition about faith and many people have doubts about their faith. And so what is faith? Well, the Bible, it, it can be confusing because the Bible talks about saving faith. And we're going to see that throughout um, the message this, this morning. But the Bible also talks about a dead faith. We'll see that in James 2.26 in just a moment. So there's saving faith that will, that will save your soul. But there's also a dead faith that will not save your soul. The Bible's gonna talk about a demonic faith, a demonic faith, we'll also see that passage here in James chapter two. It'll talk about a temporal faith, 1 Corinthians 15, two, a faith that doesn't last. It'll talk about a vain faith in Luke chapter eight, verse 13. So there are all kinds of different faith. How do I know if my faith is enough. Can you think of a question that is more important than that? How can I know if the faith that I have in Jesus Christ is enough for salvation? Well, that's the question that I want to answer. Now, let me give you just a little bit more history and then we're, we're going we're gonna to dive into Luke chapter two. So in, in the 1500s, in the 16th century, 
You've got the two sides that we've been talking about in, in recent weeks. And so you've got, the, you've got the Roman church and you have the reformers. Now, both sides would have said that you're saved through faith, that you're saved through faith. The, both sides of the argument would have said that. But they would have meant very different things by that. The question came down to this, and this will sound theological, but hang with me a moment. The question came down to whether or not when you put your faith in God, were you made righteous, were you, were you made to be right with God, or were you declared to be right with God? Now, I know that sounds like just, you know, the, 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 what, what a theologian would say that, that makes sense to the rest of us. But, but the question was whether or not when you pay, put your faith in God, did God declare you right then to be forgiven to be justified, to be made right with God, or was it something that you had to work on through the years? Were, were you made right with God because you had faith in God, or, or did faith in God just begin a journey and you had to do a bunch of things? You had to jump through a bunch of hoops and over the years you would be made right with God. So was it faith alone or was it faith plus a bunch of hoops that you had to jump through? And that really was the crux of the theological debate. Now, here's why I tell you that. Tomorrow, uh, in, uh, in my interview with Dr. Garrett, uh, we're going to focus almost entirely on that question. Because I want you to understand some of the theology of that. It is, it is important. It's important to know the distinction between being made righteous or being declared righteous. And uh, I want you to hear what Dr. Garrett has to say about it. Dr. Garrett, a uh, member of our church, but also a, a, a noted uh, theologian and um, writer of just a definitive uh, 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 series on systematic theology. And, and, and so we're, we're going to be talking to him. We, we've been doing that every Monday through this series on the Reformation. We're going to do that tomorrow and we're going to focus on these theological distinctions. Now I talked about this, I preached on this back when we were going through Philippians 1. So I'm not going to go through that again right now. We'll save that for tomorrow. Uh, but I'll, I'll, give you the, I'll give you this. Let me give you the answer. We are declared, here's the good news, when we put our faith in Christ, we are declared right with God because of what Jesus did. We are not saved by faith plus a bunch of other things. We are saved by or through faith alone. If you could put, if you put faith in Jesus Christ, proper faith, biblical faith, then you are and forever will be a child of God. And that's the good news. Now, here's though what I want to do. That's a theological answer. I want to spend a few minutes and give you a pastoral answer. I want to give you the pastoral answer to the question, what is saving faith? Now, what I mean by pastoral is I would just want to talk to you as your pastor. I want us to walk through some scripture passages in James 2 and I want as your pastor, as the one the Bible says who will give an account for your souls, which is pretty scary, I'll tell you, as the one who will give an account for your souls, I want to tell you what I think is perhaps the most important thing I could say. I want to tell you what is saving faith. And so look with me to James chapter two. And this is a simple passage. James is a simple book. 
And I want you really to listen hard for this. Nothing is more important. I want us to see three truths about faith in James chapter two that I think could be life-changing. So I'm gonna give you the, I'm gonna give you the truth and then I'm gonna show it to you in scripture. That's how we'll do it this morning. Number one, insufficient faith will not save a person from sins. So we're lost in our sins. We, we know that if you've been around here a while. The Bible says that we're separated from God because of our sins. We know that through faith we can be forgiven, but an insufficient faith will not save a person from his sins. So look with me in James chapter 2 verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? And then he asks a second question, can such faith save him? Now, when James says, can such a faith, and we'll see what kind of faith in a moment, but when he says, when, can, can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is no. What he's telling us is that there is a false faith. You can have an insufficient faith that will not save you. In our world today, too many people are teaching and unfortunately, too many preachers are preaching that as long as you have some kind of faith that God will honor that, as long as you are sincere, as long as you believe, as long as you follow your heart, you're going to be fine. That as long as you have something that you can label faith, as long as you just try your best to believe what you can believe with all the sincerity that you can muster, then that's enough for God. He only measures our sincerity. Your faith is fine. But James here tells us in this verse, no. There is at least one kind of faith, he says, that is insufficient. There's at least one kind of faith that will not save. And we see this throughout the Bible. I think about Proverbs 14, 12. It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Proverbs. It says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. There are a lot of things that seem right, and you know, maybe it just seems right to you that God's only interested in our sincerity. I think that seems right to a lot of people, but the Bible says there is a way that seems right to people, but it ends in death. It goes on Matthew chapter 7. Just listen to this. It's, a, it's something that Jesus said. Uh, it, it may trouble you. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, there's gonna be some religious people and some sincere religious people who are not genuinely saved because their faith is not sufficient. He goes on to say, on that day, he's talking about the day of judgment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. What he tells us is that some people have a faith that is insufficient. Some people have a faith that may be sincere. It may be honest. It may be heartfelt. But there is a faith that is insufficient for salvation. And we see that clearly here in in verse 14. Now, the, the second fact I want you to see, the second truth then about faith is this. A careful discernment is needed 
to spot counterfeit faith. So if there's a counterfeit faith as well as a genuine faith, then, then we need to give some very careful attention to this so that we can know which kind of faith we have. I mean, don't you want to know? If there are going to be all kind of people who at the judgment are going to say, Lord, I, you know, I was in the ministry and I was in the church and I did everything I knew to do and I was sincere and he's going to reject them because their faith was insufficient. Don't you want to know how we can tell if our faith is genuine or if it's bogus? Well, let's just continue reading. James chapter two, verse 15. I, loved, I love the book of James because he teaches with illustrations that just make it crystal clear. He says, if a brother or sister was, is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith if it doesn't have works, is dead. So let's just make sure we've got it so far. Somebody comes to your house and they knock on the door and you open and it's cold outside. They hardly have any clothes. They say they're hungry, they're, they're cold, they're, they're needy. And you feel for them. You, you, you're sorry for them. You hate that they're living in those conditions. And so you say, be warm, be fed, be gone. <laughs> and you close the door. Now, have you done anything to help them? Now, you may have helped yourself. You feel better, right? You said, God bless you, but, uh, but it hasn't made any real difference. And so that's illustration number one. Now, we, we'll give some application to that in a moment. Look at verse, um, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. How do we tell the difference between genuine faith and counterfeit faith? Let me tell you, first of all, you can't tell it by what it says. This will shake some people up, but please listen. You can't tell if your faith is genuine or not just by what it says. Now let's go back to the scripture passage we just read. Somebody knocks on the door. They, you open the door, they're needy. You say all the right things. Be warm, be fed. I can't think of anything better to say, right? Be warm, be fed, be clothed. You say the right things, but then you close the door and you bid them farewell. You have said the right things but to no effect. What he's telling us is it's a picture of faith. He says, he says sometimes faith will say the right things, but it will have no effect in a person's life. I mean, it'll be great words. I mean, your words are beautiful. You say the right things, but it has had no practical effect in your life. And what he says is that faith is not genuine. It's not genuine at all. You know, there is some danger in the Lord's Prayer. Let's talk about the, not the Lord's Prayer, in the sinner's prayer. Let's talk about the sinner's prayer. Do you know what that means? When I came to know Christ, I expressed my faith through the sinner's prayer. Somebody led me to pray a prayer, and I prayed that prayer and expressed my faith to the Lord, and God saved me. 
When I witness to somebody, if you come up to me this afternoon and say, could you help me come to know Christ as your your Savior, I will lead you in the sinner's prayer. That is a great tool to help people express their faith. But listen, here's the danger. You're not saved. You don't have a right relationship with God just because you said a well-worded prayer. See, you can't tell faith just by what it says. Just, j- just as it's meaningless to tell somebody to be warm and be fed if you don't give them food and clothing, it, it is meaningless to say a well-worded prayer to God if it has no practical effect in your life. Sometimes people make the Lord's or the sinner's prayer like some magic spell that just makes your sins go away. Sometimes people treat it like the secret password that gets you into heaven. Some people think it obligates God to do something on your half, but no, you're not saved simply because of what you say. Now, somebody might say, well, pastor, I I would beg to differ because Romans chapter 10, verse nine is in my Bible. And it says that if you will confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, that God will save you. I've heard people tell me that if you'll confess with your lips, then God will save you. Well, let's look at the verse. Romans 10, nine is a great verse and it is in the Bible. And of course it is true, but it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, and remember what's the word believe? It's the word faith, and you faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. What Romans 10, 9 says, says is that, that you need to say something, but you, but you also need to have faith. Now, it doesn't define faith. We're going to see the definition of faith in just a moment. But, but it tells us that that we have to have this saving faith and it's more than just a bunch of words that somebody got us to say. So you can't tell faith just by what it says. Secondly, you can't, you can't tell saving faith just by what it believes. Just by what it believes. If you look down at verse 19 again, the Bible says that you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, shudder. Just believing certain things doesn't make you a child of God. Uh, It says here that the demons believe. I went back through and just looked for the things that we know that the demons believed because the demons speak in the, in the gospels. So we know that the, that the demons believe that Jesus was the son of God. The demons believe that Jesus had the authority of God. The demons believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the demons believe in the return of Christ. The demons had a pretty good belief. In fact, the demons believe as, as much as uh, many people here believe or many people in churches today believe. But certainly the demons are not saved. See, genuine saving faith is not just giving intellectual assent to a a, a list of of biblical assertions. It's it's not just that you agree that these facts are true. That's not how faith is presented in the Bible. And what James tells us here is that, no, that's not genuine faith. It's not just by what you believe. Uh, you've probably heard the story of uh, Blondin. Do you know the story of the tightrope walker, the Niagara Falls, just uh, below the falls, Blondin? 
And so this was in 1860, stretched a tightrope across the falls. And it was uh, 16 stories from the, from the rope uh, to the rocky water below. And so uh, he walked without a safety net across this tightrope from one side to the other. And when he got to the, uh, to the American side, went from the Canadian side to the American side, when he got to the American side, there were thousands of people who had come to watch the show and thousands of people were yelling, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. They had never seen anything like this. And so he raises his hands and he hushes the crowd and he says, how many of you believe that I can go back across that tightrope and carry someone on my shoulders? And everybody yelled, we believe, we believe, we believe. And he quieted the crowd again and he said, well, then who will go? <laughs> it was much more quiet then than it is now. Finally, one little fellow makes his way to the front, gets on blinded shoulders, across they go safely. Now, the moral of the story is what? 10,000 people yelled, we believe. But only one person really trusted. See, the Bible teaches that salvation is not just believing a list of facts. It is, it is about trusting. It is about trusting. Well, let me tell you the third thing, because I need to keep moving. The third thing, that's the, the third way you cannot tell the difference between saving faith and, and false faith is you can't tell it by what it feels. You can't tell it by what it feels. James 2.19, the verse we just looked at, you believe there's one God good, even the demons believe, and what do the demons do? They shudder, they shudder. The demons are very emotional about who Jesus is, the Bible says. They, they shudder, they quake in fear. Um, you know, oftentimes, I ask people about their walk with God and, and they will express their certainty that they are a child of God. And I, it's not my role to question that, but it's my role to help people um, see the biblical truth. And so sometimes I'll ask them the, you know, where they're, what's given them so much confidence that they're right with the Lord. And they'll then tell me about some emotional experience. Let's say I went forward one day and prayed and I just, I had goosebumps from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet or I felt a chill run through me or I, I felt the, uh, the, 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 the burden of guilt lift off of me and I could breathe more deeply. And people talk about all these emotions. Now, what's the, what's the biblical story on those emotions? Well, they very well could be the genuine emotions that can accompany uh, forgiveness and uh, salvation and adoption in the God's family. Okay, they absolutely, that, that, that may have been the touch of the Holy Spirit in your life, but, but, but also perhaps you were, you were beginning to get the flu, okay? Uh, or, 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 or perhaps it was just cold in the room. You know, you know the Bible never ascribes a, an, an emotion to justification, Justification, the, the point at which a person becomes saved, that, that exact precise point. The Bible never connects that with an emotion. Now, many people have emotions. Many people do not have emotions. What I'm saying is you can't judge the validity of, 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 your, of your faith by your emotions. Even the demons are emotional about the things that they believe about God. You know, I, I joke sometimes, I've, I've been married for... 22 years, right? Okay. And, and you know, honestly though, 
uh, you know, about 90% of the time, I really feel married. I am just, my, my wife, she's just so close to my heart. But you know, there are some times when I don't feel married at all. <laughs> you know, do you ever just get up in the morning and you just don't feel married? But you know, my, my marriage is not based on whether or not I feel married that day. I am married. Feel like it or not. Like it or not, right? <laughs> I am married. I do like it. I do like it. <laughs> but my marriage is a fact. It's not a feeling. And our salvation is a fact. If it is a fact, it is not it is not a feeling. So many people, listen, and here's why I say this. I'm not trying to get people to unnecessarily doubt their salvation, but uh, the Bible teaches that many people have a counterfeit faith. And, and you know, if I had a counterfeit bill up here, uh, some currency, a hundred dollar bill that was counterfeit, that bill might be 99% right and just 1% wrong. And what would that bill, that hundred dollar bill that was 99% exactly like it's supposed to be. What would that bill be worth? Nothing. Zero. Because a 99% accurate counterfeit is still valueless. And, and a 99% counterfeit faith is worthless. So that brings us to number three. Life-changing faith is the key that unlocks salvation. So in James chapter two here, he, he tells us, and we're going to read some more verses, but he, he tells us that, um, that, that when you look at faith, you need to see some evidence of it. You need to see some works. And, and, th and that seems to be in contradiction to what we read in other places in the Bible. For instance, Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter two says that, that, that works are not a part of faith. He says you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. And so so, so who's right, who's wrong? James seems to say faith is, it, it's got works in it. It's got things you do. And, and, and Paul seems to say that faith is, is not connected with works. Well, let's read, let's read some more in James 2 so you see this. Look at verse 24. I'm sorry, let's just, um, well, let's, let's go to verse 24. We'll come back and read the intervening verses. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So he says that works are a part of this. And then skip down to verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So who's right? Is it, is it the apostle Paul that says faith is separate from works? That you just have faith and it's not something you do, it's, it's faith. Or, or, or is James right? Well, of course, both are right. They're describing the same thing from different vantage points. If I had a quarter up here and it was heads up and I asked somebody in the choir to describe the quarter, they would give one description. And then if I flipped it over and I asked Andre to describe the quarter, he would give a different description, right? Because he's seeing a different side. Now who's right? Well, they're both right. They're just looking at the quarter from two different sides. And, and when, when the apostle Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith, you don't have to do anything. You just have to have faith. He's, he's talking about salvation from the perspective of someone who is not saved. And, 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 and so if, if your neighbor comes to you today and says, can you give me a list of things I need to do to be saved? You can say, good news. It's a short list. Nothing's on it. <laughs> you, you, just, you just have faith. You just trust in Jesus. And Jesus will, will save you. you. You don't need to go and clean up your life. You don't need to quit this and stop that. You need to, you need to have faith in Jesus and surrender to him. 
And so from that perspective, Paul is describing faith is, uh, salvation is by faith. Now James talks about it from the other side. He says, when you are saved, when you're genuinely a child of God, there will be some changes in your life. You're not saved because of the changes, but because you're saved, the changes come in your life. Well, what he's saying is because, because you've been saved by the grace of God, there will be some evidence in your life that will, that will demonstrate the fact that you have been saved. It will make a gigantic difference in your, in your life. Now, now let's look at a couple of the, he, again, he gives illustrations. Let's look at a couple of his illustrations. Verse 21, he says, was it Abraham, our father, justified by works and offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete and the scripture was fulfilled. This says Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, you may or may not know the story of Abraham, but Abraham was a, was a, was a man who didn't know God in the beginning. God came to him and gave him a promise and Abraham believed he had faith. And at that point, the Bible says God credited righteousness to his account. When, when Abraham believed, when he had faith, God said, you're my child, just like that. He didn't do anything, he didn't accomplish anything, he just had faith. Now, God then gave him an incredible challenge to offer his son as a sacrifice and, and Genesis chapter 22, it's a, it's a, a profound challenge that frankly, I read it and I shudder because I, I just don't know that I could stand up under that kind of challenge. But you know what Abraham did? He trusted his son to God and he did this very difficult, horrible, terrible thing that, that, that was so, so unbelievable. And, and, and so his works, you see what happened is he believed in God, God made him righteous. And then as a result of that, Abraham's life was radically changed. And, and, and you can see evidence in Abraham's life that God had done an incredible work in his life. Does that make sense? Now, it, we just, I'm going to tie all this together, but I want you to see the other illustration. And it begins, where does it begin? Verse 25. It's just one verse long. He says, in, in the same way, was it Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? And so this refers to something in the book of Joshua. And, and so there's this woman and she believes the message and then as a result of her belief, it changed her actions. So, so, so let me do this. Let me just tell you what genuine faith looks like. You ready for this? You can't tell it by what it says. You can't tell it by what it believes. You can't tell it by what it feels. But here's how you tell genuine faith. Number one, genuine faith really trusts God. Trust. If... Um, if I were to tell you, and this is an illustration you've heard a hundred times, sort of worn out, but it's, I don't know a better one. If I were to tell you that I think this uh, stool would hold me up, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it. I, I don't believe I've ever uh, sat on it before, but I, I believe it'll hold me up. I'm sort of a sturdy fellow, to use a polite word. But I still think it'd hold me up. Now, that is a belief. Belief. Now, when does that belief become faith? You know the answer, right? It becomes faith. This could go one of two different ways, couldn't it? 
It becomes faith when I sit on it. You see, it's not just an intellectual ascent. I, I'm resting all my weight on this. If it falls, I fall. I'm, I'm trusting in it. When the, Bible, when the Bible talks about genuine faith, it's not just this religious experience. It's not just a I believe. It's a I'm, I'm selling out my life to this. That God says this is the way that I should live and I should lean on him and I should pray and I should just be obedient and trust him. It's not just something that I, I, I've set up here. It's something that, that you can measure in my life. And so, so what is genuine faith? It is, it is a life lived that trusts God that trusts God. Let, let me tell you the second thing. Genuine faith always produces change. Change. A faith that will save you is a faith that will change you. If you can have some intellectual beliefs and go live like the devil, I'm telling you, you're not a child of God. Now you, you're not going to go live such a righteous life that God's going to be impressed and, and then say, wow, look at Noel. I think I would like to have him on my team. No, that's not how it works. God, you're on God's team. You're, you're adopted into God's family because you have faith. But, but when you're in his family, when the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, you will live a changed kind of life. It'll change how you live. It won't be perfect. God is sanctifying you. God is working on you. And that'll take the rest of your days. But, but, but your life will be notably different because child of God. I would not give a wooden nickel for a faith that doesn't change a person. You know, Billy Graham said that... Uh, and I don't remember the percentage, it was uh, 40% of the people in churches he believed were lost. And I, I, I don't know, and he didn't know either. You know, it's not like he's got some uh, uh, you know, stats uh, app on his phone that he can get that number from the Lord. But, but here's the gist of it. There are a lot of people who've had experiences, believe facts and have said a prayer, but it's made no real impact in their lives. And there's no biblical way that you can say that you're a child of God. Faith will change you. And then finally, uh, real faith uh, creates a loving relationship between you and the Father. In James 2, 23, we read most of that verse a moment ago. I think I left the last few words off and they're important. It talked about Abraham and it said, and he was a friend of God. See, the, it may, it may grow some, it may wane some, but if you're a child of God, you love the Father. There's going to be a passion in your life for the Father. Now here, let's do this. I, I didn't preach this message to um, upset you or to cause somebody to unnecessarily doubt their salvation. But you know, the struggle 500 years ago in the Reformation, even though theologically it hinged at a different point in the faith definition, the problem 500 years ago was that people weren't sure that they were saved. 
people, Luther was not sure. He had no confidence that he was a child of God. I think for different reasons, the same thing is true today. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we adopted Ray, young Ray in China and our family six years ago, she hasn't had to wonder one day in the last six years whether or not she's really in or not. All right? She, she doesn't have to wonder if whether tomorrow she'll be back out. I mean, we made it clear she's in our family. And God wants it to be clear to you that you are in his family. Let us be certain that we have genuine faith as the Bible describes it. Now, heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. I don't want to extend this unnecessarily, but in a moment we're going to stand and sing and I'm going to ask you to do something. If you do not have or you're not confident that you have genuine faith, I'm going to ask you just to step from where you are. People will let you out and just come to the front. I'm going to have some people up here that will help me uh, with this. And if you come, I'm just going to ask one of them to pray with you privately, personally, just to pray with you right here, sitting on this, seated on this front pew. So that when you leave here today, you can be certain that you have genuine faith. There's nothing more important than that. Father, I pray you give people boldness and courage. That you give people clarity and a sober mind to address this question. Is their faith, is my faith genuine? Father, may you be honored in people's lives today as people choose to put their trust in you once and for all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand. Um, we're going to sing, but don't wait until a verse has gone by. If you need to come, I invite you to come right now to the front as we sing.